Good morning, everybody. I'm Hannah, and I'm the pastor here, and I would love it if you would pray with me. God of grace, God of mercy, God of justice, and of surprises, thank you for meeting us here today in the fullness of who we are and in this body that you have created us to be together. You have made the invisible visible, God, in the ways that we touch each other, in the ways that we are there for each other, in the ways that we show up for each other. Continue to make yourself visible through what we do with our bodies. Enter, O God, the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts. Let them be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was pleased to read a few uh, weeks or months ago something that confirmed something I had felt. Oh, thank you. I would not have noticed that, and then I would have been really confused. All right. All right. You know, I'm just going to put it on the communion table. There we go. Um, so, I was pleased a few weeks or a few months ago to read something that confirmed something that I had thought for a while, uh, or maybe something I had been scared of which is that when we know people really well, um, someone who has been our roommate for a really long time, or our friend from kindergarten, or our partner for an extended period of time, or a member of our family who we spend a lot of time with, we begin to share our memory with them. We, get, we, we begin to split up <laughs> who needs to know which story who needs to know which piece of information? And they've studied this. They've studied this in um, couples who've lived together for a long time and other sorts of strong relationships. You begin to shed information that you know your partner will keep for you, right? I no longer need to remember where we keep the Tupperware because my husband will. I no longer need to remember our first date, right? Because my boyfriend will. Like, uh, we start to share our memories and distribute them across wider and wider networks, the more people we're really close to. Do you think this is part of why people's working memories are um, a little bit uh, less good now than they were a generation or two ago, even though our capacity to critically think is just as sharp and maybe in some ways sharper? Uh, because Google has become that intimate friend for so many of us. We have stopped remembering the things we know we can easily look up, right? Because there's no point. Why remember all of the stuff that someone else will remember for you? We share our mind on this level that is um, deep and mysterious and wonderful to me. Um, and, I, and I wasn't surprised to hear that because I have felt that happen, right? Um, I have three younger brothers, and there's a way in which I feel like I carry them into the world with me, um, that I don't exist without them. I'm not complete without who they are. And we are super different people. Um, if you met them, uh, they're all far cooler than me in many different ways. Uh, they're all giants who are tattooed all over, and you know, one's a spoken word poet, and one's a firefighter who also does stand-up paddleboarding, and they like they're all just like far cooler than I could ever be. Um, but I don't exist without them. We spent too long together. We spent too long in intimate relationship, and we've become one thing where I find myself, I can go for days and weeks and months without seeing them, but I never stop talking about them. 
and they never stop being present in the back of my mind. Um, and I hope that all of us who have had the kind of loving, intimate relationships that the world can offer, that healthy communities, friendships offer, um, have a few people like that who just live at the back of us, right? Who live in our hearts. Um, and I hope that not just because it, it means you have to remember fewer things, <laughs> um, but because I think that is how God intends for us to live in ways where we are communities, in ways where we are just one part of a much bigger thing that is happening, where we're never complete without everybody else. And that's not something to be afraid of, but something to embrace with your whole wide self around it. Because when we build communities that are for all of us, each one of us doesn't have to be trying so hard to do so much alone. Um, other people can help carry us and we can help carry them. And as we share our minds, we will share our bodies and we will share in what Jesus has done for us, which is make dependence not so scary, but something that can be done in a beautiful and healthy way. It says, right, um, that in him, so in Jesus, all things hold together. For in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it's talking about the body of Christ. It's talking about all of us. And you may not have noticed, because it now sounds just sort of philosophical and lovely, but this is um, this piece of scripture from Colossians. It's, a, it's probably a baptism hymn. It's a song. It's something that people would have sang in the liturgy a lot, that the writer of the letter uses to write to people um, who are hurting and who are living in a really diverse community and trying to figure out how in the world they're gonna make it work. Um, and it's also a piece of real radical literature. Uh, some of you may have heard the phrase, you know, all roads lead to Rome. Um, that comes from this era, this time when they were living in the shadow of an empire, when Rome was in charge of everyone they knew and everyone they had access to, and Rome's desire as the empire was to take over the world and to say, all things hold together through our political system, through empire, right? Which is dependent on slavery, which is dependent on oppression, which is dependent on war. All things hold together through Rome, and you cannot possibly stand against us. This was the language of the government of the day. And this passage was a form of resistance, <laughs> where the Christians were saying, no. <laughs> Empire doesn't hold things together. Politics doesn't hold things together. It may be a tool, it may be something we engage in, but what holds things together is the God who made us all, who made us all beautiful and wondrous and individual and different, and who made us all into a community that in the end is held together by God. It was a form of saying who we're really about, what we're really about, what is really important in our lives. Um, I think about this community thing because I, I think that we have really, really, in culture and in Christian culture especially, forgotten the ways in which we are accountable to one another in our bodies. Um, this is our body sermon series. So the first Sunday we kind of talked about our individual sense of the sacredness of our body. Our body is a temple. How do we enter the world in a body with whatever we've gone through, whatever we are going through, whatever is good, whatever is sad? How do we have a body? And then the second Sunday, we talked about two bodies together. It was Sex Sunday, right? Um, people are excited. 
this Sunday, I want to talk about the whole thing, all of our bodies together, because the healthiness of our bodies, um, as we have learned about and will talk about, um, as we saw so vividly in the healthcare vote this week, um, the, health, the health of our bodies depends on the body of Christ, on the whole community that is holding each of our bodies together. Um, my uncle uh, visited worship a couple weeks ago. Some of you may know him. He uh, uses a uh, uh, wheelchair a lot of the time, or sometimes he'll use a walker. And, and uh, so I, I'm sort of used to walking into spaces. And if, just in case, and if you have a friend or you don't know this, this is an accessible space. We have an accessible door in the back that we lead people to, and, and this is an accessible space, but it's not ideal. Um, in, in walking around in the world with him, right, as I walk and he rolls or uses his walker, and in journeying through the world with him, I've started to analyze every space I enter as to, like, could Joe go here? <laughs> um, and so many of the spaces in the world, he can't. Um, and, and I think we have this way of talking about disability as something that's wrong with people's individual bodies, right? So uh, a disability is when you have a body that has failed or gone wrong in some way or can't do something. But what I've noticed through being in relationship um, with folks is that there's all kinds of diversity in how our human bodies work that we have chosen to make easy in the world, right? Um, I uh, walk a lot faster than some people. Uh, we do not have sidewalks that are only designed for me or only designed for other people. There's a lot of variation in terms of um, how big or small we are. We try and figure that out with how our chairs and our tables work, right? Um, uh, with how high ceilings are. We account for that diversity in the way that we build our space and the way that we construct our doors, and the way that we construct our stairs. Um, we account for different people's diets, or we try to, right? We account for the fact people have different eye colors or different hair colors, and that doesn't change the buildings that you're allowed to go into. And yet we have made the choice as a community that it's okay to build a society that only some people can use. That's not actually a problem with anybody's individual body. My uncle would have no problems, would not have a disability if every single building was accessible. The problem isn't his. The problem is ours. The problem is our communities. The problem is the body of Christ. There wouldn't be anything, right, he couldn't access if things were made so that everyone could access them. Um, we name the problem as individuals so often, whether it's mental health or racism or um, all of the things that our world has been structured to make some people's lives easier than others. Our instinct is to go towards blaming individuals for that rather than recognizing the ways in which our community is one body, um, is one thing, and we're making life a lot easier for some of us than for others. And that's not actually a failing or a gap with individuals. It's a failing or a gap of how we have been together, of how we have been the church, of how we have not followed Christ into his call to see every single human being as God made, God given, and worthy of everything the world has to offer. In God, all things hold together, and we who were once estranged, God has reconciled. 
there are ways that God has put into the world for us to know each other, for us to account for each other, for us to make space for each other, um, but we don't always do it. The oneness has been made real by God and communion, but we, our broken human selves, often don't follow it that way. We don't think it's so easy. But our oneness is all we've it's all we've got. <laughs> we sort of depend on it. it. It's even true in the world. Um, I was reading about uh, keystone species, right? It's not just humans that need this aspect of being one thing together, of holding each other, of, of working together to make sure it works for all of us. It's like the nature that we live in, the earth that we take our place in. Um, there's one tortoise one tortoise in Florida that it seems like it's like an ugly old turtle, right? And like, if it's there, if it's not there, we don't want it to die, but hey, um, uh, if, you're, if you're more crass about animal life. Um, but it turns out if you take that tortoise away, it digs holes. That's like its name, main number one activity, it just like loves digging holes, loves digging burrows. Um, all of a sudden, there are a dozen other species, kinds of mice and kinds of ground squirrels and snakes that don't have anywhere to live <laughs> because they have, over time, become accustomed to using these holes that the tortoise makes because we all live and work and make together and we depend on each other. And if you take them out of the equation, everything else falls apart. They found this at Yellowstone a couple years ago, one of my favorite places in our whole wide country. Um, Wolves seem scary, right? Peter didn't like them. Nobody likes them. They kill things. Wolves are scary. Who cares if there are fewer wolves in the world? They'll kill fewer things. But there became, over time, um, fewer and fewer wolves in Yellowstone. They weren't promoting that. A lot of ranchers didn't like them because they had steer near Yellowstone. And all of a sudden, everything else started to die, too. Because it turns out, when there aren't wolves, there are tons and tons of elk, and then they eat all of the plants, all of them, all of the plants, because that's what they love to do. And all of a sudden, every fish is at risk because the river is eroding, and every bug is at risk because the plants are different. And you take out one thing, and everything else just starts to fall apart. And that's how we are, <laughs> except we aren't treating each other that way. We aren't treating each other like we're of value. We're treating each other like we're disposable. In him, all things. <laughs> together, all things, everyone, the things you despise, <laughs> the things you are apathetic towards, the things you don't care about, right? The tortoises and the wolves that you thought were sort of, you know, whatever. <laughs> the people that you thought didn't matter to you, the people that you thought didn't matter to your life, every single one of them, we are made together. <laughs> the fullness of God is only known in all of us. And we're leaving so much on the table when we refuse to live like that's true. It makes our lives worse. It makes other people's worse. One thing gets taken out, and the whole thing falls apart, and we're all the worse for it. The reason that people, I think, have a suspicion about this idea of godly unity, of God making us one, is that so much of the time when we've heard it preached or called for in politics and culture and religion, it's a cheap unity, right? The way that people talk about being unified is shut up about the things that you don't like. <laughs> That will be the path to unity and to unification if we just shut up about the things that we don't like. But the real kind of unity that God is talking about, the real oneness, the real body of Christ, is taking so seriously the ways in which our whole thing doesn't work for somebody 
that you're willing to make sacrifices in order to make it work for everybody. To take so seriously the ways in which another person is harmed, it feels like you have been harmed and that is how you take it, right? And that is the seriousness with which you respond. Uh, I think I've, I've told you this before, but there's a church in um, San Francisco, Glide Memorial, that throughout the entire 1980s, um, it was a big center for LGBTQ worship. Uh, they would frequently sing, um, uh, do a liturgy and sing a hymn, a hymn like this Colossians piece is, uh, that said, we are the body of Christ, the body of Christ has AIDS just to remind each other of what was happening <laughs> and the way in which when any one of us is at risk, when any one of us is harmed, we don't ask them to be quiet so that we feel like we're one. We do everything we can to right that injustice so that we actually are one, <laughs> so that we actually are healthy, each piece of us and the fullness of us that God has made. Some of you may have heard of the word Ubuntu. It had a real uh, uh, popular, uh, it was really popular throughout the 90s, but it's a, um, a word with a long history, especially in Southern Africa and South Africa, um, referring to sort of a, a communal notion of how we live um, that a lot of people translate as, I am because we are that there is no notion of a community that's working, of a person that's okay, unless it takes into account what's happening to all of the other people and all of the other things and all of the other parts of the earth and all of the other parts of this beautiful thing we call creation. Um, and it became particularly popular through the work of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, one of uh, our greatest uh, Christians of the last few decades, um, who was bold in his witness against apartheid, who helped to tear its walls down, but who also, who also took extraordinary and unheard of risks to save and to engage people who all of us would be tempted to write off as having done too much to ever be allowed to be a part of the human community again having been too violent, done too much wrong. And there's a story, I um, lived in South Africa for a little while, and there's a story that I think not enough people know, which is, um, so you have to know a little bit about apartheid, which was that uh, it not only was one of the cruelest systems of um, enforced racial oppression and pain that has ever existed, um, but that a big way that it worked, because uh, black people, while the underside of this oppressive system were so much the majority in the country, um, was through collaboration. So physical segregation would be incredibly enforced. There were these kind of white overlords using state violence and the apathy of every single other country in the world in order to make the lives of various um, ethnicities and tribes of black people in South Africa awful. Um, but it also required collaboration. So there were black informers and police officers who did things that were awful, right? Like engaged in torture and gave up their fellow friends for torture, but also often did it because it felt like the only way out in a society that was so awful, what are your ways? What are your ways? Um, so there was huge anger towards these collaborators and informers, almost more than the oppressors themselves because in many ways it felt like well, they're just eat, right? Like those are those those are just demons. <laughs> you you should know better. <laughs> you should know better. You should be on our side. Um, and so the the pain was huge. And also during the the early to mid 80s, because it was a time of such great resistance, the government um, 
only, the only legal time for black people to assemble was at funerals, basically because you can't stop people from doing funerals, right? You can't stop people from grieving together. Um, and so funerals became these giant political acts. Anytime anyone died, there would be hundreds or thousands and they would share meals and there would be speeches. Um, and one of those was happening and Desmond Tutu was the officiant at the funeral. And he came out of the funeral um, and there was a mob surrounding a man um, who they believed to be an informer. It's a little unclear whether or not he was. Um, they believed him quite strongly to be an informer, someone who could literally like send to death their family members, right? And uh, the, the punishment for that at that time was something called necklacing, where they would put a rubber tire around someone and set it on fire. Um, out of rage, right, out of harm. Uh, and they were about to do this to this man, and Desmond Tutu stood in front of him with his physical body, <laughs> stood in front of him where he was trapped by a car, and talked the mob down, <laughs> and basically said, um, I will not leave until this person is safe. I will not go. <laughs> if you're taking him, you are taking me. And, and it's as much for you that I save you from committing this kind of act as I save him from being the victim of it. These were people who every, every morality in the world has some sort of clause that makes it okay to punish those who have hurt us so badly, right? Some sort of outlet. Um, not tutus. <laughs> Tutu believed that every single human being, everyone, no matter how much they had erred, was worth saving. And that didn't mean that he was for some kind of cheap unity. He continued to demand the end of segregation, and it happened, right? He continued to demand the end of apartheid, and it happened. And he has fought for justice in concrete ways for the LGBTQ community, for everybody. But, he, but every life was a part of the whole. I am because we are, he would say, right? And if, and if we allow ourselves to do this to each other, we will all be the worse for it. Um, and then he led the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which lived by that vision that every person deserved the truth and that every person was capable of reconciliation because his faith in God's ability to reconcile us was such that he believed you could both be true about how bad things get and there was always hope. There was always hope that God might reconcile us into something just and merciful and loving. The other thing about this scripture, this Colossians, um, is that it's written to the same church uh, that the letter Philemon is written to. Anybody know Philemon in the Bible? It's one of the shorter ones, but it's a really good one, a uh, really interesting one, where Paul writes a letter to a guy named Philemon. So slavery is the order of the day in Rome, where Paul writes a letter to a guy named Philemon. Um, Paul is with Onesimus, um, who had been enslaved to Philemon, we believe. And Paul writes this letter um, and says, basically, you're a Christian now, I'm sending him back to you so he can be in his community and be with his family. Don't enslave him anymore. <laughs> don't. Um, and we don't know for sure what the response to the letter was, but I have to believe, I have to believe that it was the Christian response which was to break that system, to break that system and to honor liberation because why else would people have been using it in worship? Why else would people have been using it in worship unless it had led to the transformation that God sought, which is always a transformation of our world 
towards more liberation, more justice, more care for each other, more mercy for one another. Um, and so this is a community which is people who were formerly enslaved by other people in the community, right? Women and men who, uh, the power imbalance is so great, and yet they are worshiping together. They are worshiping together, and they are changing fundamentally all of the things that their society has told them can never be changed and never gotten rid of. Because their faith in God is such, their faith in God is such that the worst of the world can be overturned, can be made different. And it's not gonna happen one-on-one, -on -one, right? It's gonna happen on a systemic basis. But their faith is that we can be made one, um, not in a cheap way, but in a real way, where people's lives are liberated and transformed. And so we get this letter, we get this letter today, um, and I feel convicted, right, to change my world so that it's accessible to more people, so that it's real for more people, so that it's a source of liberation for more people, because I am a part of a body that is hurting. <laughs> I am a part of a body that is in pain. Um, in so many ways, like the, the ways we could list are countless, as they are in every generation. Um, this week, it's this healthcare bill, right? The, the idea that after all the sacrifices others have made, Tutu willing to die for someone who had been a part of the forces of oppression, that we aren't willing to pay a little bit more in taxes so that people can be alive. That idea is offensive to me, and I think that it's offensive to God. <laughs> and I think that it's offensive to Jesus Christ, who, who paid the ultimate price to show us that there is nothing that we can do that makes oppression win, that makes hatred win. There is nothing we can do. Jesus will always draw us back from it. There will always be resurrection, no matter how dark and terrible things look, and no matter how far we've gone along a path of disaster and destruction. There is hope. And so Jesus calls us to act like we're one, <laughs> to act like the other people matter, to act like the wholeness of our community is just as important to us as those couple of people who we've gotten so close to that we share their mind and heart. In the end, this thing, this thing about being reconciled, this thing about being made visible, the great powers of God, about being held together in God's fullness, is about the ultimate power of God, that makes all things new and all things different, but it's also about how we are being called to be different, to not assess life by the individual, but by all of us, by all of us. How we have and have not harmed each other, how we have and have not held each other up, and how no matter what has come before, we have a new opportunity today and tomorrow to act like we are one community. And so we're gonna do that. We're going to take communion, and we're going to love each other, and we're going to pray, and we're going to totally screw up, totally screw up, and we're going to continue to try and be one thing with care for each other. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.